good afternoon, good evening, and good night. This is Screen Watching. My name's Dan Barrett, joined by Simon Foster on the show this week. It's a big one. It's a doozy of a podcast we've got for you. We've got Shazam! Fury of the Gods playing in cinemas now. We've got Swarm, the new Donald Glover, sort of Atlanta-related TV program, but not related at all, but just related because he said it's related in an interview recently. Who knows? Uh, we've got Lucky Hank, which is a new series that's debuted in AMC in the US and stand here in Australia. Simon's going to take a look at Pearl, which is part of the extended universe from the movie X. Is it the XEU? I don't know. We'll find out. Uh, and also, we're going to take a look at the new Australian Amazon Prime video series, Class of Seven. Guys, it's a big show. Let's kick things off. This is not like TV only better. Television! Teacher! Mother! Secret lover. What, that's it? That's your movie? Well, I said that I had an idea for it. Guys, this is Screen Watching. My name, Dan Barrett. Uh, Simon Foster, how are you, sir? What's going on? Oh, look, I am well, Dan Barrett. Lovely to talk to you. Lovely to talk to the screen watchers out there. Welcome to what, by my calculations, is the 113th screen watching podcast. Lucky 113. I know. What could possibly go wrong? Wrapping up the Oscar Festival uh, this week, um, it's been a, a fun week. I'm keen to get your views on the ceremony itself, some viewing figures, and uh, our prediction scorecard, which went a little bit awry when it turned out that All Quiet on the Western Front was going to win everything. First of all, we should have a chat about the, re- the, the the ceremony itself. Did it do what it had to do in terms of bouncing back from the Will Smith saga? Look, I'm fine. Thanks for asking. Okay, so, Simon. <laughs> uh, sorry, I should just express at the top of the podcast here, this is a podcast yeah. that is, we were starting to get things on track. So we've had technological yes. issues that have been, you know, causing some hiccups for the last couple of months. So regular yeah. listeners, thanks for persevering. Okay, so we were close yes. to getting that all wrapped up in the next like week or two. It was going to be fine. And then this week, suddenly I found a technology hurdle has stopped me from being able to connect to my microphone set- setup. So yeah, if I sound a little bit crappier than usual, I apologize. If I sound better, like, you know, I, I, we apologize, I apologize for that as well. It. Yeah. Uh, so we've got that. <laughs> okay. Okay. So this is why I stay out of all things. This is why I stay out of, of all things technology. This is why this is your thing. Because I see the stress that this has aged you over the two and a bit years we've been doing this podcast, dealing with uh, my lack of knowledge about all things technological and, and all that sort of stuff. So you'll make it right. I know you'll make it right. God, I'm not going to make it right. Okay, let's talk Oscars, Simon. So yes, I sat down. I watched this live on Channel 7 this year. So that was exciting. Yep. I will, and look, you and I have discussed this. I've been very, um, my interest in the Oscars has been diminished year on year for the last couple mm-hmm. of years. But I don't think it's just the Oscars. I think it's award shows in general. And admittedly, the only two that I watch each year are the Oscars, are the Emmy Awards. And occasionally yep. I'll squeeze in the Golden Globes, but only depending if I can stomach it that you know morning. It's, it's really dependent. Uh, yeah, but like I'll always make sure I watch those two in some sort of a form. Uh, my interest in both has been diminished, and I think that is in part because, one, like a lot of people, I'm beginning to find the idea of this sort of congratulatory um, festival of back, uh, backslapping just a little bit on the nose. And yes, these are industry awards, and an industry award should be celebrating that industry, but these are a bit different in that they are televised awards, and we're watching people who are 
exceptionally well paid who are basically using these awards to elevate themselves to a new financial strata. And it's a little bit hard for me to sit here going, you know what, good on you and enjoy that next like $12 million that's going to make its way into your bank account through whatever you've signed up for, as well as, you know, good investments you're making in terms of buying houses and apartment blocks where average, average, average folk are going to be, you know, subservient to you for decades to come. Whereas I, whereas I come from the other point of view is that I grew up with these ceremonies back when I started watching the Oscars, it was really other than, the, the glossy mags uh, and celebrity movie magazines that I used to buy, this was the only time we saw the stars get frocked up and it was still a delayed broadcast back then, but it was an up-to-date look at what the stars looked like. The glamour was still there. The glitch was still there. So I still have a very fond sort of holdover for the old school appeal of, of the award ceremony, yeah. even, if, even if the movie star slash um, celebrity... Uh, you know, that, that notion has been very sullied and dirtied over the last couple of decades. Yeah, look, I mean, I saw, and look, he wasn't, it wasn't like he's a nominated actor by any means, but I did see Ryan Reynolds the other day sold his uh, telecommunications company for $1.6 billion to another telco. And I thought to myself, yeah. you know what? It's hard to get that much more enthused about it. Good on you. You've made another Deadpool movie. Like, it really <laughs> grates on me. But also to what you said, I'm not 12 years old. I also grew up with this as part of my life, but I guess I've been willing to grow and evolve past that and raise my you know, red flag a little bit more as I start looking at these things. Sure. But anyway, sure. so diminished interest there, but side by side with that has also just been this constant gnawing feeling that I've got, which is that these awards exist because they're associated with the guilds and organizations that set behind them. So with the Academy Awards, you have the Academy of uh, Television, Motion Picture, Arts and Sciences. Uh, yeah, so you got those guys behind it. And so it's an award of that body. But as a viewer, I'm sitting here thinking, well, a lot of the viewing experience I have these days is really television. And so movies, as we start seeing them take a bit of a backseat in terms of like that um, cinema, big screen experience, the big classy films that are being celebrated here and never the films that are playing on VMAX. Okay, these are the ones that are playing in the theaters a bit further back in the theater. Okay, so it's it, this. We are going to we no, are no, going to so, constantly disagree on that perspective. But yes, I don't. I don't. Yeah. So but that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. No, that it hasn't been the. But for me, watching this, I'm thinking, well, if we want to celebrate the best of on-screen performance and acting, then these should be awards that are smashed together in some form. Like the the actors are moving backwards and forwards between big screen and small screen projects. Like essentially sure. the quality of a production TV wise is just as great as some of the films that we're celebrating as part of the Academy Awards. It makes sense to me, particularly as we're talking about technical awards, mm -hmm. that they are celebrated on the same platform, but they're not. And so to me as a viewer, it feels weird. So putting all of that aside, I sat down and I will say this is one of the more enjoyable Oscars from the last couple of years. And maybe that's mm -hmm. in part because of, and I, this has been a big ranty thing for me so far. I'm tired of my voice already, Simon. But <laughs> I, I put something in my newsletter the other day, which was talking about how I felt about the Academy Awards. And this year, it was kind of like a bit of a line in the sand moment where I saw everything everywhere all at once, which I love that movie. I was a big supporter of it from the get-go and I'm very keen to mm. have seen what sort of, you know, happened in the almost 12 months since. That's all really cool. But it kind of feels like... Everything Everywhere All at Once is the demarcator of a different voting body who are actually having influence now within the Academy Awards. So in the last couple of sure. years, they expanded out their membership 
quite dramatically with the academy. So um, I, they I don't have the numbers in front of me. I had them in my newsletter the other day. A lot of younger uptake, That's a lot it. of like, younger academy members. Essentially, they've like increased their membership by like about a third. It's something thereabouts. Yep. Okay. And so with that, when you're increasing, bringing new people in, you're getting younger people, you're getting more diverse people, and you're getting more international people coming through as a result sure. of that. So what it's done is it's meant that the people who were voting on the Academy Awards, who were generally sort of older boomers for the majority of them and people who were sort of aging out of being professional within the industry, okay, were the ones mm -hmm. that were really dictating what the best film was. But you've got this younger crop coming through now. And what that's doing is it's changing the uh, like nominated and the award winners purely because this is an audience who've grown up in a different sort of a media environment. These are people, and I refer to this in my newsletter, as the adult swimification of the Academy Awards. Because- I did yeah. read that, yeah. So effectively, you've got this generation of people. So if you think about the people that have been inducted into the Academy in the last couple of years, these are people that are probably under the age of 45, if we're thinking about this. Mm -hmm. So if we think about this, yep. like this is kind of like my age group people. Like I'm sort of, you know, towards the top end of that. And I grew up from the mid nineties, watching a lot of um, TV shows and movies that played around with metatextual stories taking place and things that weren't afraid to get a little bit weird, but still imbue a lot of like sense mentality through it. Like um, South Park came along during this time. If you think about the difference between a South Park and the Simpsons, like they kind of are sort of worlds mm. apart in terms of how much they're actually willing to deconstruct things. And, you know, it's, I just kind of grew up in like an interesting time where the old ways were just kind of being ripped away from storytelling. And so we're seeing this sure. reflected. I think seeing everything everywhere all at once win is a sign that the academies now are willing to get a little bit weird, a little bit sort of stranger, and step away from what was considered Oscar bait. And this to me is the exciting can story. We do, can, can, we do, can we put all of that on this one film in the last 12-month period? Because it was only a year ago that it was a very conventional, albeit fantastic film in Coda to have yep. won the... The, uh, the the best film award. But, Prior to that, it was Nomad Land, a very Oscar baity, well, very look, um, underseen, subdued Oscar title. So, okay, so first is of it all, just sorry? First of all, uh, Nomad Land. Like, there's definitely elements of Nomad Land that reflects more on like 1970s cinema than does anything that's kind of of the current moment. Sure. Okay, but I would yeah. say that that year of Academy Awards, like I'm just willing to ignore that year entirely in terms of any sort of cultural consideration. Because so few things were released that year and it was a weird Academy Awards, the lowest rating of all time and maybe the worst Academy Awards of all time. And you and I have argued about that before. Um, <laughs> but I, I do feel as I think about like the year before then, the introduction of Parasite. Now Parasite was the first film that really showed, sorry, there's Parasite, but also Moonlight the year before that as well. These are the first films oh, sure. that started coming through as we're seeing this changing guard of who's voting for these. I'm not saying that every year you're going to start seeing something that's really weird and breaks down the mold of what could be. But Moonlight wasn't a mm -hmm. traditional pick. Parasite's not a traditional pick. Um, obviously, you've got your Nomad Land and you've got the oh, like, everything. There's like a bit of an elasticity to things. So when things move in one by direction, the same notion, I was going to say when things move in one. By the same time, notion, all quite second, on the west. Sorry, one second, Simon. When things move in one direction, there's always an elastic band element, and things sort of come back a little bit, and it takes time for a new. Uh, status quo to start really sort of properly taking hold. So I think that we're in that right now. I think that we're starting to see like some of the old ways of breaking down. It's not like next year there's going to be like another weirdo film that comes through that is suddenly, you know, everything's being placed on a bagel in the way this film was that we just saw this year. Like 
that's sure. not happening, but it does mean that maybe the year after that, we're going to start seeing things pushed in that direction a bit further. It just means there's a permission now for a film not to feel like Oscar bait. And that's kind of what this year really represented to me. This is the year that said, yes, this is actually possible. That, and I'm yeah, and I'm fine with that. And I, I absolutely agree that 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 it is a, a a game changer. We said it would be a game changer going in. I would also probably point to the rather conventional, all quite on the Western Front, cleaning up across the a lot of the the below the line category. So there is still that element, and that um, some of the more I guess traditional or some of the more expected winners in films like Elvis and The Fablemans di- didn't play out. So there's certainly a, a changing of the guard. I think the ceremony had uh, did what it had to do and was returned to a more traditional. Um, uh, kind of award ceremony that allowed for the unfolding of the diverse award winners and the the um, category highlights to speak for the Oscars themselves rather than the the, the, the show that went around it. And I think Jimmy Kimmel was uh, instrumental in making that work as well. I don't think he was the... I mean, he had some fun moments and, and, and said some fairly cutting-edge stuff, um, but I think he handled it as, as well as he could have in a, in a traditional sort of... Um, Oscar host way and we're going to get to the f- viewing figures now where we talk about a 12% increase overall from the lows of the last couple of years up to just under 20 million I think 18.7 or 18.9 million um, whatever it was this year now still low and probably not quite the benchmark you were looking at you mentioned 20 million in your in your viewing figure target I think if you look at if you put a positive spin on that if you could ask any organization for a 12% growth in the popularity of their product in 12 months, that's not a bad result. And I think that that should be a, looked at as a, as a positive. Look, I would say that, yes, it's a 12% increase and people are happy with that, but people aren't ecstatic about that because we didn't pass that 20 million mark. What it probably means is that this year was seen as the year that you possibly could get over that 20 million mark, which would be a sign that the mainstreams are willing to just embrace it entirely. And with there's potential for growth and you know the continued existence of it, as we've experienced for decades at this point. Okay, but I think the fact that it didn't quite reach 20 means that we're in a situation now where this is probably the ceiling. This is probably as high as it's really ever going to go. And at this point, we probably need to reframe how we think about this. Maybe these aren't awards for the mainstream as much as these are awards for your hardcore film enthusiast. Okay, and so therefore, we maybe need to start reframing it in a different way. So that's kind of where it's at. It's maybe a it's not necessarily a sign that things are returned or things have failed as much as just a sign of look, run a new status quo, let's embrace it for what it is and move forward. Very true. Prediction scorecard, I got seven of the big eight right, but I did not see the all quiet on the Western Front wave in all the subcategories. I had a mix-up of uh, uh, Elvis and and, um, Top Gun and some of the other titles winning those below-the-line categories. So um, did good in the the run home, but not so much in the... In the, in the bigger picture. Yeah, look, I certainly predicted a whole bunch of everything everywhere all at once. That was whether tea leaves were taking us all. Uh, where I probably sort of stumbled a little bit was there was a few moments where I thought maybe there's a chance for an upset here. So I'd sort of peg Colin Farrell might sort of make his way through there because I kind of feel that was a fairly beloved performance and maybe it'd kind of work out for him, but that sort of fell apart a bit. Um, outside of that, the one disappointing aspect of the awards, and I know this is going to sound a little bit trite coming from me, considering the rah-rah shit from the last you know, 12 years, whatever I've been carrying on about this for, um, but seeing the guys win for the technical awards, and I think they were the only people that were played off the stage that night. And it's, I, I think a real sort of 
They were one of the they were one of the first, definitely. Well, was, yeah. there, was there anyone else played off? I thought it was just those guys. Oh, uh, later on there was, yes, yeah. Some of the the Spanish ladies or the Argentinian ladies who okay, turned up well, to win their award. They, they well, look, I mean, yeah, it happened. It happened as the as the evening went on, and they realised yeah. they were running out of I mean, time. I just kind of feel for a movie like Avatar, where Avatar and Top Gun were seen as the reasons why you might actually get people watching in larger volumes than you have previously. And also you think about the fact that the award they won, like that was entirely what the whole Avatar experience was based on. Like it is a special effects heavy movie. And it was yeah. obvious they were going to win because nothing else is really at the quality of what they, like Avatar from a, like just a special effects standpoint. Oh, I agree, like I picked it, is, it, yeah. You know, far and above anything else anyone's doing. Like they've invested the time and sure. resources in this. So they had to win. Like, yep. it was inevitable. And if they didn't win, it's like, what are you even doing, Academy? Like, there was no chance that they couldn't win that. Like, it was sort of guaranteed. But I just kind of feel that for, considering how much pressure was being placed on both Top Gun and Avatar to play off white people from either of those films, just seemed a little bit weird to me from a TV production standpoint. Everybody was happy that Avatar won that category. Nobody cares who the people are who uh, did the special effects, or know? especially who they, especially who they have to thank. Yes, I know what you're going to say. One of them was called Dan Barrett, and we're all very excited say, about well, that. I believe he goes as Daniel <laughs> Barrett. Uh, oh, he look, does, does he? All right. All I know is there was a number of Dan Barretts around the world who wanted to hear what Daniel Barrett, our most preeminent <laughs> Daniel Barrett, had to say, and we didn't get to hear from him. So. So you can now go around saying Oscar winner Daniel well, no, Barrett. That can be that can that be, would be identity fraud. <laughs> it would be much the same way as you could walk around guy, oh male prostitute Simon Foster. Like you're It was like when well, like when Kramer won the Tony for the Raquel Welsh um <laughs> Welsh Broadway production. Uh, I believe that was of Raquel uh Rochelle Rochelle, the Lovage Broadway. Rochelle Rochelle, yeah. yes it was. Oh, yeah. Anyway, where are we at? Full on opening, and we look, and okay, so we got to the, we got to the, we got through our Oscar bit. It went as exactly as I thought it might go, but we do want to mention that, and the news just came through this morning that one of the the leading lights in the in the um, Australian entertainment scene for the last thirty odd years, uh, Brian Walsh, um, who was the head of Foxtel for many 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 years, um, and has held some very high positions in the industry, passed away very suddenly at the age of seventy one. Uh, just yesterday, as we're recording this. Um, we both met him in social situations, in, in sort of um, casual business situations, and, and he was a charming gentleman. But there's no denying what a, um, an incredible contribution he made to the, the launch and the growth of Foxtel and to the industry as a whole. He's the man who, uh, in his early days, was an incredible publicist. Um, welcome to this country, artists like Michael Jackson and Barbara Streisand and Ricky Martin, and, and also um, shepherded through the huge success of Neighbours in its as, as one of his many accomplishments. So RIP, Brian Walsh, it was a shock when we woke up and got that news. This yeah, morning. look, absolutely. As you mentioned, like, I've met him a bunch of times around the place, uh, particularly when I was a journalist for Media Week. Uh, so I'd see him quite regularly in sort of Foxtel function, and he was always, you know, very happy to have a chat, was always interested in, you know, just my thoughts on things. And, like, it's always a uh welcome experience when somebody isn't just wanting to sell their product they actually want to talk to people and get to know who they're talking to and it's actual it was a relationship that he's forming as opposed to just a broadcast conversation which you find quite frequently yeah. in the industry but anyway i always found as he's such a like a warm interesting and interested person and you know when i read that he passed this morning you know it was suddenly an unexpected email to arrive in my inbox as i think was the case for a lot of people in the australian industry today uh, incredibly sad to read because he was just genuinely one of these people that I would always be quite happy to see at an event and you know I was always fairly happy to see him go walking into a room technically we should be starting the middle bit right now but let's go <laughs> into the let's let's go into our review segment 
Okay, Simon, I think just because it's kind of the big title of the week, let's go with a movie review first. And there's a new DC superhero movie called Shazam! Fury of the Gods. I'm an idiot. It's showtime! I don't deserve these powers, if I'm being honest. Like, what am I even contributing? Ow! There's already a superhero with a red suit with a lightning bolt on it. Aquaman is literally huge and he's so manly. And Batman is so cool. And I'm just me. I feel like a fraud. Shazam! Fury of the Gods is me going back on my promise not to review any more comic book movies. I was a big fan of the first Shazam, and as much as a big fan of someone who's not that into comic books can be, um, I like the lead actor, uh, Zachary Levi, as uh, the young uh, superhero, in pl playing the superhero inside the adult body. That, um, and, and this one sort of doubled down on him having a good time. I, don't f I didn't find this one quite as interesting or as much fun as the first film. It tells the story of Shazam and his team of uh, superheroes, each of whom have a certain superpower that they're able to utilise. Um, but what happens is that uh, Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu and Rachel Zegler as uh, the Daughters of Gods return to reclaim this magical stick, which... <laughs> Looks like the cheapest bit of uh, set design you've ever seen, prop design. Um, so what you get how, is a how very. How do you dress up a stick? I know, and they do their best, but it really just looks like a, a, a bit of fire, like a bit of fiberglass with a an energy saving globe in the top of it. But um, and what unfolds is a very special effects heavy uh, by the numbers superhero sequel that loses a little bit of the fun, a little bit of the spunk that made the first film so enjoyable um, and offers up a bigger is better version of the Shazam story, which I found certainly bigger, not necessarily better. That's about as enthused as I can get for Shazam Fear of the Gods. Would you like to add anything to the, to the mix? Yeah, well, so I went and saw the first Shazam film when it was playing in cinemas. I was in Japan at the time and got to see it at a Japan cinema. And interestingly, their cinema, pretty much exactly the same as watching it at VMAX, like, you know, much the same, uh, yeah. except I had Japanese subtitles at the bottom. So I didn't have those this time through. But look, what I did find when I watched the original Shazam, and maybe this was that I was on an extended month-long holiday, so I had a bit of, you know, um, glow and restfulness about me. But I found this to be an incredibly charming and incredibly... Uh, there's a malaise that exists around the glut of superhero movies. That there's one, When there's one that sort of steps outside of the standard mould of these things, that I tend to get a little bit more enthused about them than I probably otherwise should because it really feels like this is an actual movie. And I kind of miss being able to see these big Hollywood blockbusters. And the superhero films dominate this as a genre, but there's certainly other films that kind of feel as though they're more episodic um, stories and like a TV experience on a big screen rather than being movies as they should be. Sure. So when I see something like the Shazam movie or even the Batman, which I think is quite a bit better than Shazam in a pretty um, serious way, but well, I've actually felt like movies and so I'm a bit more invested and enthused. Uh, when it came to Shazam mm -hmm. Fury of the Gods, I will say the one thing I felt with this one is that it felt like a movie. Like it didn't, like it kind of felt like the latest installment of a movie franchise, but like it still felt like a film. So I really enjoyed that. Mm -hmm. From a special effects standpoint, I thought the special effects, like there was the occasional sort of chintzy moment, but by and large, the quality of the effects were quite a bit better than you usually see in some of these films. And maybe this because of the last film I saw like this was the Ant-Man movie where the special effects were definitely not of this caliber. 
Um, so maybe, you know, it's kind of waged um, fairly, well, unfairly, I guess, against the shitness of Into the Quantum Mania or whatever you want to call it. Uh, but the special effects in this thing good. Also, unlike a lot of the Marvel films, like the backgrounds, like there were extras running around and there were actual human beings and you could see there were real people like actually captured on a camera. It was incredible. They weren't just like CGI blobs. Which may account, which, which, which may account, and our, our, our friend Travis Johnson mentioned this in a tweet that he yeah. put out, it seemed like there's about 40 people <laughs> in Philadelphia. There wasn't, there wasn't like any of the big crowd scenes that, would, that you'd see on a scale of, of um, uh, like in the, the Avengers finale. This, this very much was shot at street level, and at times it looked like there was maybe like half a dozen people running around while all this uh, apocalyptic event But you know place. what, Simon? Next time you're walking around Sydney, take a look around and see how many people are like actually near you. Like, oh, I don't go out. Well, I was going to say, it, hypothetically, if you think of you know the old times, what, 30 years ago when you left the house. But like, look around. Like, exactly, there's never yeah. usually hundreds of people around unless you're at like a major event somewhere. So if you're in like a sure. large football stadium or something, you're going to see a lot of people. But generally, if you're just going down to do your local bit of shopping, you maybe stop into a cafe, look around. There's usually like 40 or 60 people around. Like the Marvel films okay. are over right, Like, fine. yes, if you're in a much larger city, like say a uh, New York or a London, you're going to find a larger volume of people just generally around you. But Sydney, That's especially post-pandemic, uh, like there's never really a lot of people around any given moment. And Brisbane, where I am, like, you know, you, well, you suddenly you made the comment through the yeah. week that that you made the comment through the week that with the closure of the Maya store and the Maya Center there in Brisbane, that the center of the city is a, a dead zone. Oh, most no, of the time. I was actually explicitly talking about that Maya store. You walk into that Maya store, mm. there is never anybody there, except for when you want to buy something. Yeah. In which case, you'll be behind three people at the one register that's open. <laughs> okay, but broadly, <laughs> there was never anyone in that shop, so it wasn't a huge surprise to see they were shutting down that Maya. Uh, but anyway, Shazam, where does Shazam, Shazam Fury where, of the Gods? Where does it where does it go now? Where does it go now? Okay. What what do we do with, with James Gunn stepping okay, well, up before, to do, before we do that, the, the Superman film? What what is up for the the DC Simon, universe? Sorry, before we do that, I want to say that broadly, it's not quite at the caliber I think of that first Shazam film, but I think it was still a perfectly fine, enjoyable enough time of the movies. If I'd okay. spent my twenty three dollars, yep. whatever ridiculous price it costs, to buy a VMAX ticket now. Um, like, I'd be pissed off at the ticket price, but I wouldn't be disappointed in a way that I might have been with, say, Ant-Man, for example. So I think it's a, it's a better film. And the guy that I saw it with was a comic book guy who hadn't seen the first Shazam film. And he was actually really into it. He was surprised at how light on its feet it felt and fun and vibrant. So, you know, certainly sure. I think there's pleasures to be had from it. The big failure of this movie, I think, is actually Zachary Levi. So if you think about yeah, yeah so if you think about what this movie is doing, it's supposed to be set four years after the last one. So in the last one, it was about Billy Batson, fourteen-year-old kid who's joining this family. He's in a foster system and he's being placed with this family. You're watching him mm. there, and this is now him as a kid who's on the cusp of turning eighteen, and so he's going to be no longer like that family's not required to keep on looking after him anymore, and like they don't receive money for him being part of it, and so he's feeling this sort of pangs of you know he's growing up. But he's also growing up at like the top level of a system that's about to chuck him out and it's about how he feels about all this exactly, so we are looking yeah. at this sort of four year difference and think about the way that a teenager acts from when they're 14 to when they're 18 it's radically different sure zachary levi did he moderate like did he change his performance style at all from pretending to be a 14 year old boy in a superhero um, body to when he's an 18 year old boy in a superhero body no, if anything, he has more juvenile in this film than he did in the previous one. Exactly. And to me, that was the thing I yep. really struggled with this movie. I'm like, could they not have, like, 
I appreciate once you've hired him, you're kind of stuck with him at this point. But surely something should have been done to yeah. modulate that performance because it was garbage. And the, and the scenes that involve the now 18-year-old Billy Baston from the actor whose yeah, name same. I can't remember, um, he, he has grown. Yeah. He, has, he, he has developed as a young man and he's taking on responsibilities and care for his friends. And, but, yes, when he becomes Zachary Levi as Shazam, it's just back to Zachary's goofiness. And, and uh, you know, I, I guess without that goofiness, the filmmakers probably thought it, it lacked a bit of the charm, it lacked a bit of the, the or what made the first film a success, but um, it's what undoes much of the good work in this film. And it is David Sandberg. It's the yeah. same director and, and co-writer doing the bit. So he knows he, he got it right the first time. I think there was probably a few too many um, cooks in the kitchen on, on, on putting this one together, which brings me to my next question or the, the previous question with James Gunn announcing Superman. Um, there is a, an appearance in this film from Wonder Woman. We don't want to give oh, well, too much yeah, away. There's I mean, a very cool moment in there. It's been the trailer. They've been giving it away for a long, well, long time. I will say so this. Sorry, about might... that Wonder Woman appearance. There's two elements of the thing that I think one of them was really well handled, the other one less so. So one, if you remember that first film, there was a lot of talk about whether they'd be able to get Henry Cavill to make a guest appearance into it. So there was a lot of scuttlebutt, and then mm. evidently they couldn't close the deal because when you watched it in that movie, you saw Superman come and meet the teenagers in the cafe, and you just sort of see from, like, the neck below. So they were playing around with like that yep. shtick a fair bit in this, where you see Wonder Woman make two appearances. One where she's cut off at the neck entirely and you sort of see her from behind. And then when you see her turn around, yep. suddenly there's something else happening. So you never quite see whether it's the actor. Oh. And then at the very end, they have a very funny, goofy camera shot where she turns around. It's always been from neck and below. And then suddenly you see Gal Gadot there and you know, it's all, it's all happening. So I thought that was really fun. Yeah. I thought that was really well handled and a really good nod to anyone. Because if you look at that appearance where she reveals the head, you've got like a very steady shot and then suddenly the camera just goes up and it's a very playful um, yeah. shot. I thought that was hugely um, well executed. The thing that doesn't work so well, and this is the thing that looms over Shazam or Captain Marvel as a character, uh, basically Shazam, the red costumed guy that Zachary Levi's playing, his name is Captain Marvel. And you understand why they can't call him Captain Marvel. Uh, like, you know, in terms of just like from a public perception standpoint, that's weird in this current age of big Marvel movie. But also there's been legal issues with this character for years and years and they can't call him Captain Marvel in some media and it's a real nightmare, which is why this film keeps on playing with this joke of what's my superhero name? Yeah. And the thing is like, they never really resolved that in a comfortable way at all. If they just called him Shazam from the beginning, that'd be fine. But they just kept on playing with this idea of what's my name? What's my name? And it's like, well, that actually isn't interesting to anybody other than the five people in the mm. audience who might know about the legal stouches regarding the Marvel family and the various sort of rights entanglements they're all involved in. Like, it was just a weird <laughs> um, aspect of the movie that I just don't think played well at all. All right. Yeah. Okay. Um, should we move on? We're half an hour into this podcast and we've literally talked about one movie. Okay. So. Um, perhaps we should try and tie things uh, up. Shazam, if you liked the first one, go and see it. If you're a bit tired of Marvel stuff and thought they were a bit more just generally fun, uh, maybe check it out. Uh, at least see the first one and then sort of, you know, weigh up if you want to go and see the new one in the cinema and pay $23 to go and see it. Uh, boy, that rankles me, Simon. Two, two weeks in a row I've chosen not to watch Scream 6, middle of the day, where ticket, like, I'd be the yeah. only person in that theatre and they're still going to charge me $23 full freight to go and see it. 
goddamn outrageous. That's insane, the dollars you're paying. Yeah. I know. All right, you were managed to have a look at the new series Swarm on Amazon Prime. If I got to do her makeup, I wouldn't be able to touch her face. My hands would be shaking so hard. You still tweeting from that old ass Swarm account? Mm-hmm. She is not like everybody else. She knows what we're thinking and she gives it a name. She's a goddess. With your feet on the air and your head on the ground. I gotta grow up, Dre. I can't stay here with you. Why are you doing this to me? I had to ask you to leave. Try to strip and spin it. What do you think she's doing right now? Okay, Simon, I'm going to keep my review super quick and concise. Uh, Swarm, it's a new series co-created by Donald Glover. The premise of this one, if you think about the title Swarm, what it really is is a play on Beyonce and The Hive, which is to say that this is about a young woman who's in her late teens, almost maybe early 20s. Uh, She lives in an apartment with her sister. Both of them are very much on the poverty line. They both work a really terrible retail job. They are really as financially low as you can really get. Uh, the two of them have this massive love for this pop star that's around a Beyonce-type character, and all the fans of the people aren't the hive like Beyonce has, instead they're the swarm. And so the very beginning of it has her being successful enough to be able to buy some tickets to an upcoming concert. She ends up paying $1,800, which is not a dollar figure she can afford to pay. And the difficulty with this program is that you don't really want to give away the gimmick of the program, Okay, but at the same time, I'm going to do it anyway. Okay, so if you're a bit nervous about okay. it, uh, jump ahead a minute or two. But basically what happens is the sister is dating this real just dirtbag of a guy, commits suicide. Okay, so the younger daughter, who's the real hardcore like fangirl, she ends up going to that guy's place and ends up brutally murdering the boyfriend. Okay, and that's... That oh kicks God. off a series of every episode is kind of like an anthology story about this girl just being in like a new situation as she's moved elsewhere to try to you know financially keep going. So episode two, she's working at a strip club. Episode three, she's somewhere else. And it's kind of like Poker Face, but if the story is about a Ooh, Beyonce yeah. fan who is going murdering people on the regular. So basically every episode gets her involved in some sort of <laughs> um, world where people are being treated poorly. And so she just goes and brutally murders them. Um, and that's the half hour show. It's kind of, it's not really funny, but it's not really heartwarming either. But like, it is gripping and it's horrific. And there's a title card at the beginning that says that it's, um, uh, it's something about how it's inspired by true stories or something. And I don't know how true that is, but certainly it plays very well with ideas of obsession and fandom and how far you're willing to go in order to protect your fandom and the thing that you hold dearest to in the world as illogical or as you know, ridiculous as that may be. This, this gets very close to a genre and a kind of storytelling that I have a lot of trouble with. And that is the, um, serial killer as the anti-hero slash hero main character in a, in a in a narrative, whether that's Dexter, whether that's Swarm. I, I, I have a problem with the mindset of the serial killer being treated as um, normal enough to base a, a multi-character arc upon, uh, certainly in a, in a, like a, a heroic um, context. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that's fair. Basically, I'm not sure you should really watch this show then because that's all this is. Uh, 
Philip, <laughs> I found this to be incredibly watchable. Uh, the first episode's kind of amazing, and then after that, it becomes a little bit rote. Uh, but that's only because you're kind of okay. in on the vibe of it all by that point. Uh, I haven't seen all of it. I haven't seen the first four of seven. Uh, but I'm certainly going to watch the other three over the next few days because it's a good one, and it's streaming now on Amazon Prime Video. Do you want to roll straight into your next one, uh, Lucky Hank, which is on uh, stand? Yeah. Professor, you barely said anything in an hour and a half. Could you please, just for once, say something? Your only novel isn't even available at your own campus bookstore. You? You're here! The fact that you're here means you show very little promise. So, look, this is another one I was really into. Uh, this is... Do you remember back in 2021, there was a Netflix series called The Chair? And this was a show set in a prestigious university kind of an environment. Uh, it was about a department of English professors created, oh, created by yes. Amanda Pete and produced by her husband, one of the Game of Thrones guys. Actually, I think both the Game of Thrones guys are there as yeah. producers. She didn't star in it, but instead yes. it was, uh, gosh, what's her name from Grey's Anatomy, who I really like, Sandra Oh. Yes. Sandra yeah. O oh was in it. That's right. I do remember. We reviewed yeah, on the Jay show. Yeah, and Jay Duplass was in there as well. Uh, yep. That was a show that I found to be just unwatchable. I could not get into that program at all, did not care for it, and I wasn't alone. Uh, there was a lot of real animosity mm -hmm. that existed for that program. I got a vague recollection that you liked it, but, you know, whether that's... That can be memory, I'm not sure. But, yeah, I mean, the show never went on to a second season and, you know, justifiably forgotten by and large. There was a small contingent of people that yep. were really into it. The thing is that that show, I'd be kind of interested to know about the people who are making Lucky Hank because essentially the chair existed in the world while they were in production of that. But I'd like to know when the actual production began for it and when the seeds of it becoming a TV series were really in place. It's based on a book. There's a few yeah. crossover well, elements. It's, it's okay. kind of the same right. thing. It's about a university chair of an English department. Okay, this is less of a prestigious yep. university than the other one. Like, this is definitely a lower rent, lower rent university. Um, and the character is fully cognizant of that. And that becomes a plot point in the first episode that carries through. But in this, you've got Bob Odenkirk, who I've got all the time in the world for Bob Odenkirk. I think him to be such a just pleasant screen presence. Like, it doesn't matter what he's doing. I'm absolutely there for any time that he's on screen. Uh, it's basically mm. him being written by Paul Lieberstein, who is, uh, he's the guy that plays Toby on The Office, but he was also one of the showrunners of The Office for quite a few seasons yeah. of that program. Uh, he's a comedy writer. Started out, I think, on King of the Hill back in the day, and he's sort of, you know, been banging around. But he's doing this, and uh, he's co-written it with someone whose name's dropped out of my head. But, you know, the writing on this is incredibly strong. It's funny, Bob Odenkirk is a really sort of genuine, lovely presence in it. Uh, you've got his wife in it, who is a... Uh, teacher at a high school who's sort of dealing with her own uh, bureaucratic sort of stuff taking place. But a lot of that from the first two episodes takes a bit of a backseat to Bob Odenkirk's character. And there's something which kind of feels a little um, dismissive of her character because she's not really quite given as much time. Like if both of those stories were equally weighted, like I feel the show would be maybe in a little bit of a stronger position than it is. But um, especially considering that the okay. wife's played by Muriel Enos, who people would know best from The Killing. Uh, the US version of The Killing. Um, anyway, she's kind of incredible and she's sure. really great on this. But again, there's something weird about the relationship with those characters and how they're not really weighted properly. That kind of weighs on it. But the real strength of this program is that much like The Chair, the Netflix series, uh, it's very much about the uh, 
relationships and the infighting that exists between all the people within the university. So all the professors arguing against each other, um, the relationships with some of the students that aren't necessarily as um, cut and dry as they probably should be. And you look at the Motley crew that have assembled for Lucky Hank, it is far and away more engaging, more entertaining. You've got like people like the great Suzanne Pryor who is in this. Like it is super watchable, a lot of fun. Uh, you're gonna wanna just mainline this and binge episodes in a way that you never would the chair. <laughs> The, the the setting is one that can be a little put can can be perceived as a bit highbrow. I don't have a problem with it because one of my favourite movies of all time is Wonder Boy <laughs> yes. with Michael Douglas. It all set in a all set in that that world of academia where you you sort of hope they don't all start talking off about authors and their favourite poets and that sort of stuff because that can put your mainstream audience offside and it probably put the mainstream audience offside for Wonder Boys because it didn't do much business, um, but it can also reveal some really eccentric and wonderful characters in the form of these um, people who spend their entire life in schools as, as students and as teachers and become these professors. Um, does this have some of that charm? Does this sort of pull back a little bit on the, the hoity-toity, the highbrow nature of life in uh, uh, the, the, the hallowed halls of tertiary So education. one of the things I'd say about Wonder Boys is while that may be the outside perspective is what that film was, like that film was actually such a warm, very relatable human story. So yeah, was exactly not that. Yeah, so exactly. Uh, I would say that Wonder Boys being one of my favourite movies of all time as well, and I love the book that it's based on, also called Wonder Boys by Michael mm -hmm. Chabon. Uh, this, every time I've watched an episode of this and I've seen the first two, uh, it just harkened back very much to the vibes I felt from Wonder Boys. It's not quite as, it's not right. as quiet as Wonder Boys. Wonder Boys had this sort of beautiful sort of um, three o'clock in the morning sort of vibe pervading through the entire thing. This doesn't really quite have that. This is yep. a, a little bit more varied in tone. But uh, if you enjoyed Wonder Boys, like this is very much something you'd call on the And someone I wanted to point out as well in this is that there's an actor in it named Sharon DeVito. Uh, Sharon DeVito, I've seen her in a couple of things, but I think more like just appearances around the place than anything else. Uh, she's got the absolute breakout star from this one. When you see her, like you'll know who she is because she's in a wheelchair and you know she's a distinctive presence on screen. Goddamn hilarious! And in this one, she's given like some wonderful moments to shine. So watch out for her because she is an absolute scene stealer, if not maybe an like entirely a series stealer at this point. Speaking of opportunities for breakout stardom, I'm going to have a word with you about Mia Goth in the movie Pearl. It is a great name for a film like this. Um, she plays the titular character, Pearl, a young woman uh, living on a farm in Ohio in 1919 uh, who has dreams of being a, uh, a dancer on the stage and, and leaving the farm life and moving to the, the big smoke to fulfil her dreams of, of talent and stardom. Um, she has a wickedly evil mother who just demands of her um, the farm life of feeding the animals and milking the cows and getting their um, invalid father 
to dinner on time and cleaning him up and doing all the, the, the more arduous things that your average teenage girl just doesn't want to do. She falls in love with a projectionist in the town who's able to show her uh, the Paris Follies film over and over again, feeding her desire to be a dancer. Um, and she also has a very sweet sister-in-law. Her husband's actually off at war, but Pearl's sister-in-law, Mitzi, is a, uh, a wonderfully charming presence in her life and kind of wants to help her make her dreams come true as well. Things start to implode. Um, and what you find is that Pearl suddenly emerges as quite the psychopath um, she has a crocodile who's living in the river down by the farm to which she feeds, um, first of all, farm animals that put her offside and then some of the less unfortunate town folks. And then um, we learn that as her dream starts to deteriorate, so does her stability um, and, and ability to hang on to reality. Um, Mia Goth plays Pearl with this energy and this vibrancy that, um, you just don't usually associate with the serial killer types. Um, and it's shot by, as you mentioned at the top of the, the show, Ty West. It was shot um, either towards the end of the shooting of or just after the shooting of his film X, which was set in the 70s and which the character of Pearl plays a, a very large role. Um, but this is a prequel and is shot in this beautifully rich sort of technicolour. Those of you who know the work of Douglas Sirk, the great director who made um, some of the most beautiful sort of lush melodramas of the 50s, Ty West uses this kind of cinematography to, to shoot Pearl and it's just a beautiful, beautiful looking film. It takes a little while, but it's also an extraordinarily gruesome film. The last 20 minutes of this movie go OTT in a way that just rattles the cage. Um, but this is all about the what Mia Goth can do with this kind of character. There was a lot of talk that if the Academy really honoured all types of movies, um, Mia Goth's performance in this should have got her in the, a Best Actress nominee, and i got no problem with that. She is, she is extraordinary. I loved Pearl. Um, it's a different type of horror film. It's certainly a horror film, but a different type of horror film. So it's in fairly wide release as we speak. Okay, Simon, let's talk about the new Amazon Prime series called Class of 07. We are stranded indefinitely. Running, 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 running. And everything is going to be fine, and you're going to go out there, and you're going to be normal, and you're going to have fun. Ten fucking years, bitches! Why do white women always feel the need to do shit like this? Do you have anything stronger? Honestly, if I don't see you again for another 10 years, fine by me. Okay, Simon, you and I, we've both seen this program. Uh, you've got some fairly hostile things you wanted to say about it. <laughs> Look, I, the, the first thing I will say about it is that I only watched the first episode and doing a little bit of research prior to this podcast, a lot of the reviews say, and I quote, it gets better. <laughs> so maybe it gets better than the first episode. So uh, I don't know. You tell me well, what you so thought. So Class of 07, this is a series about, uh, okay, there, there's sort of two sets of characters. You've got uh, broadly the group of young women in this who are all uh, what they be. They would be 20, well, yeah, 27, 28 years old. Uh, they're graduates of an all-girls um, fairly uh, you know, prestigious uh, private school who are all returning for their 10-year anniversary, their school reunion. So they're there in that crowd. But then you've also got like a member of that school, the graduating class of 07, 
who has had a really unfortunate recent incident as the uh, star of a Bachelor-like television program where she ended up creating quite a scene which That's ended so with a bird shitting in her mouth. Uh, that video ended up going viral, and so she's a bit of a social outcast and has been hiding out in a caravan for six months prior to the launch of this. Now, she, living in this caravan, the actual caravan is located really quite close to where she went to school, and she didn't even realise that there was this uh, school reunion happening because she's been off the grid for the last six months and so never found out about the invitation for it. But anyway, she's out there one night, she's thinking about, you know, how everything's fallen apart around her, when literally the ground starts falling around, apart, uh, around her and there's sort of geysers of water all bursting out everywhere. So she gets in a car and drives up the hill and follows the emergency plan for the area, which is to all meet at the school grounds because it's at the top of a large hill. So that's where you go for higher ground. She goes up there to find that there's a school reunion. She gets involved in all the bitchy cattiness of everyone that's sort of around there and then just general shenanigans. But when she got up there, she told everyone, oh, there's, you know, an emergency. We need to be looking after this. But everyone's too caught up in their stuff. They don't pay any attention to her. And then at the end of the episode, you realize that, oh, wait, they probably should have been paying attention to her because now the entire world's been flooded out and they're there as maybe the last survivors on Earth, who knows, at the top of this um, school facility left for what is essentially going to be a permanent, eternal high school reunion. It's a very high <laughs> concept sort of um, uh, introduction to a, a, a female friendship storyline, and i got no problem with that. I'm glad for the Aussie industry to be tackling this sort of storyline, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm assuming it, it plays better as so the look, series I've only seen on. the first two episodes, so I don't really have a lot more to go on it than you do, but one, I really like the concept of this program, even though I, I think some of the execution isn't really quite there. I think Emily Browning, who plays the social outcast who's been, you know, shamed on reality TV, I think she's generally quite good. I think that she's given a lot mm -hmm. of really strong lines. I think her performance is quite good. She's one of these sort of characters which are a bit annoying on screen where she has trouble sort of breaking down the interior voice versus the external voice and there's a lot of talking to herself yes. and, you know, people's tolerance of that can only go so far, I feel. And with this, I think that she was kind of at the very upper echelons as to how much I was willing to take. Um, so she didn't cross oh, yeah. over for me, but there's other actors in it who their performance is sort of overstep the line of how much I was willing to accept. So Megan Smart's one of the actors in it, and she plays a um, former school captain or interim school captain or however you want to phrase her. Uh, but she's an aspiring politician and she's got one of these sort of fake British accents and a bit hoity-toity and people don't really act like that. Like, you only ever see these people in TV shows like this. And so she's kind of awful and a bit of a write-off. And there's one or two other characters that just play things just a little bit too high. And it was just hard to really sort of jump on board with this. But then you have other people in it, like Caitlin Stacey, who I absolutely adore. I think she's fantastic. Um, and yeah. I haven't seen her do a lot yet within the two episodes I've seen. But, you know, the fact that she's there is a bit of promise of where things are going. And based on the fact that as much as I feel this lost a fair bit of steam, and that's a bit of a pun because there's a lot of steam with the guys at the beginning. Uh, a bit Just of a, a pun. bit of a pun. Uh, while I think it definitely loses steam by the end of that first half hour, it generated enough goodwill for me to want to see this through a little bit further. But if I tap around around episode two or three, well, I mean, I've already seen two, but if I tap down like three or thereabouts, I wouldn't be in hugely like surprised by that. Like I'm on the cusp at the moment, Simon, but I was willing to look at, like take a look at it. I think some of the cast were great. As I said, Emily Browning, I think really puts in a pretty strong performance here. And um, I, I, I quite like the scene at the no, beginning with the video that goes awry. I think she handled that very well.
So Simon, intermission. Uh, what are we talking about this week? This was this is your idea. No, no, this was all your idea. Um, we are talking about those moments in cinema when a character, or in television, when a character turns up that undoes all the good work of everyone before them. So these are the characters who have made the, 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 the very best of cinema and television all of a sudden the very worst. As you described it, a character that you absolutely detest that ruins a TV show or movie that you otherwise like, love, or admire. Now, I thought this was a a um, pretty clever idea. And I came up with five from movies that instantly came to mind. Um, do you want to meet a run ahead with my five? Have you got five? I mean, you're you only saying, do, I, do you want to go ahead first? Because you know that when we started this podcast, I hadn't actually <laughs> put together my list, even though I came up with this idea. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, thank, yeah I, know. I know what I'm doing. Uh, but no, Simon, uh, we'll go one, one. One, one. Okay. I'm going to count it down. Number five, on my list of terrible characters who ruined, in this case, a franchise for me, is the character of Fat Bastard in the Austin Powers films, the Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me, and Austin Powers in Goldmember. Uh, Mike Myers played this grotesque, huge, horrible, sweaty, vile human being who wasn't funny in the least. And for me, uh, undid a lot of the goodwill that I had towards Austin Powers because the first film is still one of my favourite comedies, but also represented for me a turning, a twisting in what Mike Myers wanted to do on screen and led, there's a definite correlation between what he does with Fat Bastard and what he ended up doing and largely ruining his career with The Love Guru. It's a similar sort of comedy. It's not funny. Um, and Fat Bastard, I think, is one of the most vile on-screen characters to pop up in cinema ever. So that's my number five, Fat Bastard. Uh, yeah, that was that Mike typical Myers. case of Mike Myers being the hero until he became the villain. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, yeah, so look, I've got a list here, and what's weird about my list is that as I kept on trying to think about the characters that really grated on me over the years, and the characters that completely usurped uh, what I thought were otherwise good shows, I've always found like a really interesting phenomenon with all these, which is that when I go back and revisit the show after like a few years, and maybe there's just maturity coming yeah. from like a different perspective from when I saw these shows originally, but I've actually found myself actually appreciating these characters in ways that I hadn't like beforehand. So maybe, Simon, when you mature a little bit, okay. you'll come back to see Fat Bastard as the clever creation that he always was. <laughs> that makes okay. no sense whatsoever. So, like, the right. one of these characters who just used to just shit me to tears, okay, was the character of Cosmo Kramer in, the, in Seinfeld. So, no, that's <gasps> it. So, what? when I watched the show originally in the 90s, and I was very early onto the Seinfeld train, I was watching it back when it was on Channel 9 after Cheers on Thursday nights, uh, like, you know, real early for Australian viewers. Uh, so back then they were playing season sure. three episodes. So I believe the first one that went to air in Australia was the episode, The Car Park. Okay, but it was suddenly that era. Mm -hmm. So it was either The Car Park or The um, the Restaurant. Is the episode called The Restaurant? The one where we meet Babu Bot, the local uh, proprietor of the, yeah. Indian. Oh, okay, yes. Yeah. So this was a rich vein. Yeah. This was, this was some yeah, of the best. Yeah, these are great stuff. episodes. And I always found myself like a bit... Uh, do I really like the show? It's a bit weird. And then I came around on it. But it's also because I was like 11 or 12 years old. So, you know, take that for what it is. But as a teenager, <laughs> I never, I, mean, I should have been in bed is the problem, Simon. But no, I never liked Kramer. It always kind of felt like his 
just completely counter to what I liked about the program, which was the clever wordplay, the little asides that take place. And Prima was never there. He was always this weird guy that was off getting involved in adventures about looking after some birds, some pigeons, and it would just always derail like the storyline that I was really enjoying. And then there'd be like this additional Prima stuff. And it wasn't that I like hated him, but like it always just bothered me that he was there. Okay, and that feeling's never really quite gone away. I certainly came around a bit more on Kramer over the years. My Kramer-sized iceberg in my heart yeah. definitely frosted slightly. But I've been doing this rewatch of Seinfeld right now, and Kramer may be my favorite character at the moment. The performance of Michael Richards in this, and I appreciate we're not allowed to say this in 2023, based on certain performances he may have made on a uh, Los Angeles comedy stage uh, almost a decade ago. It's okay to say it. It's He's kind okay. of incredible in this. There is so much subtlety and nuance to a Kramer yeah. performance. The level of physical performance and how much subtlety actually exists within that over-the-top nonsense is just mind-blowingly good. Yeah. And so, I don't know, I kind of feel as though yeah. the greatness of Michael Richards has been lost because of a bit of a discretion, an indiscretion that he made, but, you know, I'm sure he'd take back if he could these days. Yeah. He probably would. All right, that's a, that's a big call, but yeah, I can understand where you're coming from. Now, my number four is a performance from an actor from a time, and I know there's a certain irony to me saying this because I'm quite open about the fact that um, the Peter Sellers oh, no. movie, The Party, is one of my favourite comedies and still remains I one see. of my favourite comedies. And I always get emails whenever I say that. Screen watching podcast. No, no, one, no one you were okay with me being pro Michael Richards. <laughs> but I can find no... Um, it, it boggles my mind that the character played by Mickey Rooney, oh, Mr. No. Yuniyoshi, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, could have had could have at any point existed in anyone's mind as a good idea. Least of all, the very um, liberally minded, uh, uh, you know, a human advocate that Audrey Hepburn became to see Mickey Rooney do the full, um, I think it's been referred to as yellow face in some quarters, the full sort of Chinese caricature in the middle of breakfast at Tiffany's as her landlord just boggles my mind. And despite it being a classic film and a film that, um, has grown in adoration by everybody that, that watches it. The absolute gut punch that his performance and his moments in this film delivers uh, may not take you out of the film as a whole, but certainly takes you out of those moments and you sort of look at it and go, oh, my God, what on earth were they thinking? In a period where there was so much of that going on, white people playing Native Americans and, um, you know, the remnants of, of blackface in popular culture still being... Uh, front and center. Um, this is one of the most evil portrayals of anyone um, that I've ever seen. So yes, Mickey Rooney's Mr. Yuniyoshi in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Yeah, look fair. Character. That character, Mino Raiki. Okay, so Simon, I'm going to bundle together two characters now as like my number two option, and this kind of follows in that Kramer sort of vein of yeah. two characters that I really hated when I first watched the series through, but I've come to really appreciate why they're there, and if anything, they've kind of become beloved characters since then. Uh, from The Sopranos, Carmela mm -hmm. Soprano, gosh, I mean, she's there to deliberately grace on you, okay, and boy, did she, and I've really come around on that, uh, and also Pete. Remind, 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 remind our, 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 us sort of um, not entirely devoted Sopranos watchers, Carmela was the mother, wasn't she? I mean, honestly, Simon, yes, okay. outside of you, everybody else knows who I'm talking about. 
I know, I know. But we've got to, we've got yeah. to, there's always that one. So that was case, you know, the great Eddie Falco um, playing that role. Yeah. Uh, and then yes. also on a very similar sort of a tangent, uh, Mad Men being my favourite TV show of all time, the character of Pete Campbell, uh, that weasel Pete Campbell, um, did not care for. He always frustrated <laughs> me. I was like, you know, the character, to my mind, originally had kind of served his purpose early on in the series and there wasn't a lot of value to him going in. But I have to say, he definitely ranks among my all-time favourite characters now. I think that Pete Campbell's incredible. Now, Vincent Kartheiser, yeah. is that his character? Yeah. Are we thinking of the same person? Okay, so, so no, I don't know Mad Men at all, but I know exactly who you're talking about when you put it in those terms. Yeah. So, yeah, Again, okay, you I really should it. know better. I know. Okay, now I'm going to go with my number two, well, sorry, with my number three one. Uh, in a film that I generally detest overall, the most detestable of all the characters is Mark, played by Andrew Lincoln in Love Actually. Now, he is the one who secretly pines after his best friend's girl, played by Kira Knightley, and has those scenes where not long after Kira marries his best friend, he turns up at, his, at the front door and starts holding up cards to express to her the uh, the love that he feels um in an interview not that long ago uh the actor andrew lincoln openly states that he understands why everybody hates mark what that, that love actually was meant to be a series of vignettes about different types of love and that his was the unrequited love but the way that it plays out in the film is that of a stalker slash backstabbing friend who um puts this new bride in a very uncomfortable situation. I hate those scenes with a passion in a film that I really don't like at all. Um, I think Mark's, Andrew Lincoln's Mark in Love Actually is a real... I've never seen it before. (laughs) What is that? Yeah, Yeah, that's the one. Sorry, I was doing a bit of card action. (laughs) All I had was a red pen. You can't read that on the screen. My sign said this this podcast is too long. And then my next card said, marry me. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Well, that'll work well Very as a well. podcast. Yeah, exactly. You're forcing them to watch the video now. Okay. So okay. This is one that number three. The bill of what we're supposed to be talking about here. This is the character of Kalinda Sharma from a TV show called The Good Wife, uh, as portrayed by Archie Punjabi. That character is fucking annoying. I've never cared for it. There's a thing that you can clearly tell from the watching of the show that the writers of the program just like absolutely adore her. There's a strong section of the viewing public that absolutely adore her. And look, I kind of get it for the first season. Like she's a bit of an interesting character, but the more that they gave her through on the show, the more it became apparent that she was a bit of an island uh, for what was going on for the rest of the series. And as there was clearly some animosity on set between the lead of the series, one Juliana Margulies and one Archie Punjabi, and Archie Punjabi clearly had yeah. less to do in terms of the main storyline. They just amped up the, they doubled down on Kalimba's storylines and none of them ever pay off. And it's like, we get it. She's a sexually complicated character and maybe a lesbian, but maybe not. Who can really tell? We understand she's got great boots. That's fine. Let's move on. Boots. Right. What? Yeah. Oh, yeah, right. No, okay. Yeah, it, um, it was lower. Yeah. Oh, um, okay. Great boots. We get it. Let's just move the character out. And when she left the show, I feel the series picked up dramatically from that point. Okay, my number two. I'm going to stretch the premise here a little bit. My number two is known as the Shia LaBeouf sequels. Now, there was a period in time when Hollywood tried to shoehorn uh, the young actor Shia LaBeouf into some big studio productions. The two that um, all but undid his studio career were Wall Street Money Never Sleeps, 
Oliver Stone's very misguided and all but forgotten sequel to Wall Street, and the far more high-profile and far more unliked Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Now, these are two movies that you may or may not remember featured Shia LaBeouf pretty heavily. Um, this was Hollywood's attempt to create a new young superstar and maybe send these franchises into um, the next phase of their their lives. Um, <laughs> these were two really dire misfires that... Um, or but put a red through red line through Shia LaBeouf's career. He was quite likable in the first Transformers film, but then as he turned into an off-screen turd, um, Michael Bay said, "Yeah, no, I'm sick of making movies with you," and took him out of um, a, a couple of the, the later sequels. So the Shia LaBeouf sequels uh, were all but ruined. I don't think specifically by Shia LaBeouf, but yeah, his well, I get that. Shia LaBeouf. I remember watching in an episode of Freaks and Geeks when he was a young teen. He's absolutely hilarious in it. He's got really great screen presence, incredibly memorable. I totally get why the likes of Steven Spielberg were very keen on him as a young actor and were trying to get behind him. So when I saw him sort of really become pushed as Hollywood's it boy, didn't surprise me in the slightest. That said, you know, it was definitely diminishing returns. I'd forgotten that he was in the Wall Street um, sequel which I probably wouldn't have seen either yeah. way. But... I'm not anti, I'm not anti Shire in any way. I've, he's done some terrific work, certainly done some terrific work since. And I, I love some of those early stuff. Did I love the movie holes, but um, yeah, these were two that, that really suck. What was your number two? My number two, Simon. And look, when I originally proposed that we talk about this, I actually put the thing I wanted to have on a list in there, the movie flying high, or as people internationally know it, airplane, I think uh -huh. is completely undone in the final third of the movie as a overly camp, just way too over-the-top um, air traffic control staff member gets involved in it, and it completely just sinks the movie at that point. I find oh. that character to be so grating, so unfunny, and gosh. We're talking, just... about the we're talking about the character of Johnny, if I remember his name correctly, and I'm going to have to do a little bit of a search to find out who plays him. But he, for me... And maybe this is a sort of division of, of a generational thing. Maybe it's just we don't find this kind of stuff. But, but he had some of the biggest laughs in the film. Oh, look, it's the first thing that turns up on the, on the Flying High Airplane uh, page. So um, God bless you. I've got to disagree with you on this one. I just thought he was absolutely hilarious and had some of the funniest lines. Johnny, how about some coffee? No, thanks. I could laugh at that all the time. It was played by Stephen Stooker, played Johnny Henshaw Jacob. So there you go. So. Okay. Anyway, Simon, <laughs> one more. My, num my number one, uh, the number one person that I find totally derailed a film for me and led me to the belief that this is really the worst film ever to win the Best Picture Oscar was the character of, and I'm going to get the name right, Caledon Hockley, played by Billy Zane in Titanic. Any, whatever reason James Cameron had for casting one of the great ham actors, Billy Zane, uh, in his billion-dollar uh, version of the Titanic tragedy, I just cannot fathom, no pun intended. It is a terrible casting choice. He choose the back row of the cinema or choose the scenery plays to the back row of the cinema are the two analogies I mixed up there. Um, as Caledone Hockley, God, even the name makes me want to punch the, the screen. Um, in Titanic, Billy Zane is arguably my least favourite film character in history. I'm getting <sighs> mad. <laughs> Look, that, that's big. Um, 
look, Billy Zane, you may remember, was in a trilogy of movies called the Back to the Future films. Yes, I do vaguely as one of Biff's offsiders, yes. Exactly. And this is where we end my, well, this segment with, as I talk about one of the actors who just, you know, ruins everything. Well, ruins this at least. In the first film, you got this really charming young actress named Claudette uh, Wells, who played the character of uh, Jennifer. Surname, did we ever find out? No, I think it's just Jennifer. Anyway. Very pretty girlfriend. Yeah, very pretty girlfriend. Uh, Claudia, after that first Back to the Future came out, I believe decided to leave the industry. Mm. Okay, that's fine. But there were still sequels to be made and they recast the role with one Jennifer Shue. And boy, is she awful in those movies. Like every time I watch it, like not only is she just bad in it, but the thing is you've had a taste of what really could be with Claudia Wells from the first film. And it just, just disappoints me every time. But anyway, her performance in those films is just awful. And I'm a Jennifer Shue fan. Like, there's other movies. Elizabeth Shue, yep. Think, oh, sorry. Um, yeah, Jennifer Shue. Elizabeth Shue. Like, some of the films it was making, even from, like, around that time, are some of my favourite movies. And Night Out on the Town, okay, or as it's known in other territories, Adventures in Babysitting, yep. okay, is, like, an all-time favourite, like, film of mine from being a young kid, okay? And still, I can watch that film to this day and have a great time with it. Um, I was watching an episode of Cobra Enthusiasm the other week, which has her appearing in a fairly significant role, opposite one Michael Richards. Actually, I don't know if they had any scenes together. But she can be great, but in these films, boy, she stinks. Wow. Okay. Does that bring to the end our middle section or our intermission, as it's now called, The Terrible Characters Who Wrecked Your Favourite Movies? Oh, boy, that was hectic. All right. Let's jump straight into what do we got here? Uh, Let's jump straight into history. Are we talking history? Is that what we're up to? Yeah, I guess so. This day in history or this week in history. All right, my friend. March 18, 2005, set in a ritzy hotel and starring real-life twins. Which series premiered on this day, March 18, 2005, on the Disney Channel? I believe this one, and just trying to make sure i got the name right. It's The Sweet Life with Zach and Cody. Of Zach and Cody. Well done, yeah, starring Dylan and Cole Sprouse, who turned their back on... Disney fame and fortune both went off to college, although they returned to acting. Now, March 21, 1982, which former Melbourne newsreader joined 60 Minutes as the show's first female reporter? I would presume this is one... Uh, oh, wait, no, not her. Um, Yana Wentz. It is Yana Vent, sister of George, uh, March 21, 1982. Uh, March 21, 1997, the premiere of this musical biopic that proved the breakthrough role that would launch singer-actress Jennifer Lopez on the road to superstardom. What was the name of that movie? The premiere of March 21, 1997. Is this the movie, like, the superstar she was playing, like, it's a biopic, right? It is a musical biopic, yes. Yeah, like she died in real life, like a fan yes. killed her or something like that. Something like that, yes. Yeah, I, I can't remember the name of the film. The film is based on the story, the life story of Latino star Selena Cantilla Perez, and ah, the name of the film yeah. was Selena. That's it. And finally, March 24, 1971, GTV9, the Melbourne arm of the Nine Network, axes tonight with Stuart Wagstaff and the Ugly Dave Gray Show. And these were the last two spin-off shows from which late-night variety hit. I mean, I just have to assume it's in Melbourne tonight. 
It is Graham Kennedy's in Melbourne tonight. That's right. It was such a huge hit. They spun off all the co-stars into their own TV shows. Stuart Wagstaff, what a great name. And ugly Dave Gray. Who'll ever forget their, their great years on Blankety Blanks. <sighs> Busy times. Okay. Are we up to birthdays? Insert drop-in thing. Yeah. Let's go up. March 18, 1959, Irene Cara. March 19, 1947, Glenn Close. March 20, 1950, William Hurt. And March 23, 1930, Steve McQueen was born. These four actors have all played a specific type of role, more specifically within a certain setting. That's a bit of a clue. So you have a look at the photo there in the, on the Facebook page or on the running sheet. Um, you'll see that these actors have all played a certain type of character, usually found within a certain type of setting. What might that be? I have at some point in their careers, they've all played femme fatales who have had sex with Michael Douglas on screen. <laughs> that would be unlikely. I can't speak of any off-screen indiscretions, but on screen, these four actors have all played prisoners. Now, if you go okay. from the top there, March 18, 1959, Irene Cara. That was a bit of a tough one. She starred yeah, I, in a... I don't uh, know she is. She, uh, Irene Cara from Fame, and who passed away recently. She starred in the B-movie Italian thriller Caged in Paradise. Glenn Close was in the Bruce Beresford film Paradise Road, in which she's led this all-star female cast, Frances McDormand and Kate Blanchett and Julia Muglis. Um, William Hurt won the Best Actor Oscar for Kiss of the Spider Woman which found him in a South American prison. And Steve McQueen starred in two classic prisoner films, The Great Escape and Papillon. And that is the end of our birthday segment this week. Okay. Simon. There you go. Am I mistaken in saying this is the end of the podcast? Oh, God, I hope so. It's gone on longer than religion. Really, this has been very chatty. It's been a great chat, but these podcasts, wow, I've got to tell you. Simon, it is currently yeah. 36 degrees where I am. I'm in a small, unventilated room. And you're just complaining about the length of the podcast. I don't want to hear well, about it. I got a very nasty paper cut just earlier this morning, which I'm still dealing with. So, you know, we, we all have our own problems. Folks, so this has been the end of the podcast. Uh, my name's Dan Barrett. Uh, if you enjoyed this podcast, leave a review. It helps other people find the program. Uh, also, you can find me. There's a spill that we usually got written down, but I don't have in front of me. But I'm just going to tell you that I run a newsletter. It's called Always Be Watching. It comes out Monday through Friday. It talks about the big stories in TV, streaming, and film. Good. Yeah. And, <laughs> you always watching. Be streaming, and you'll always be streaming newsletter. It counts the big shows that launched that week, and it comes out every Friday. It is the best um, account of the uh, the world of streaming and, and TV shows that you will find. It is now behind a paywall, but it is the most uh, worthy paywall subscription you can find. Yeah, also, it's goddamn cheap as well. If people it want really to sign up very for it, cheap. Like, yeah. I, I can't remember exactly what my dollar figure is for it these days. I want to say it's $37 a year. Can you comp me an account? Because I still haven't paid for it, and I really should. I'll, I'll comp you an account. I'll Thank you, mate. You. I'll take you care of it. You can find me on at Simon R. Foster One, my words. And I'm putting a lot of stuff up over on Screen Space at the moment, screen-space.net. Visit all things Screen Watching, our Facebook page, at Screen Watching Podcast, the Screen Watching YouTube channel. You can find it just by going to at Screen Watching on the YouTube channel, on the YouTube uh, site, and on the Twitter, at Screen underscore Watching. Tell your friends. Okay. Well, Simon, I'm about to go and pass out from heat exhaustion, so it's yeah. been a pleasure. You are sweating in places I've never seen you sweat before, so it must be very nasty up there. Well, as soon as we hit stop on the recording, I'll show you all the places I'm sweating. <laughs>
YouTube won't let that go up for sure. No. All right. Okay, mate. Thank you for a fun podcast. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.